from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Measured Thoughts on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, David Reepstein. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Measured Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Dave Reepstein, a professor of marketing here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined, as always, in studio by co-host and Ph.D. candidate of Marketing and Business Ethics here at Wharton, Sunil Betty. Sunil, welcome. Glad to have you in here again. Glad to be back, Dave. Glad to be back. Uh, I've been away for a little bit. I've been in Japan for a while. been traveling a variety of places and uh, was down in D.C. doing some things. Been really, really busy. Got lots of things I could be talking about, but I want to get us into our guest today. Absolutely. Uh, because I am so excited to have Beth Comstock, who's with us. And so I want to get us uh, talking to her at the end of the program, the, the last segment of the program, you and I are going to open it up and we're going to talk about everything related to marketing and, and whatever issues happen to be on your mind, Sunil, <laughs> and minds of any of our guests that are out there. And I want to remind our guests that you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You're listening to Measured Thoughts and Sirius XM 132 Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. You can also email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter on, at, at BizRadio132. But before anything, I want us to jump in and start talking about Beth Comstock and with Beth Comstock. Beth Comstock is one of the people I most admire. She is a former vice chair at GE and was the uh, chief marketing officer there and was the president of integrated media at NBC Universal. I frankly do not believe there's a woman in business that is more powerful than Beth Comstock. Let me edit what I just said. There's very few people that are more <laughs> powerful regardless of gender. <clears throat> That are, that's right. that, that are more powerful and that are more influential. So it's been a real pleasure for me to know her and Beth. Let me welcome you to the program. Glad to have you with us. Wow, Dave, thanks for that. What an intro. I, uh, I know there's a reason I like talking to you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I've always enjoyed talking to you, and I'm just thrilled that you're joining us today. And you are, for me. You are my rock star. I, I, you know, whenever I get a chance to meet with you, and I'm just thrilled and so uh, delighted that I have you on the air and can share some of your insights. And at some point, what I also want to do and what I should have also included in the introduction is about your new book, Imagine It Forward. So we are going to get to talking about that. But I want to have, uh, have you describe for our listeners your background. And so how it is, you know, I mentioned some of the positions and only some of the positions you had at, at General Electric. How did you get there? What was your background? Yeah, well, my my it's a it's a not a straight line, but my uh, my background was really as a storyteller. I started out in uh, media, um, got into promotion, which led to um, marketing, and uh, I went from NBC to GE, which was all owned by the same GE owned NBC, and um, and worked my way through a little bit through GE, and ended up being chief marketing officer as Jeff Emmelt came into his role after the Jack Welch leadership days and. I took my marketing, as you know, we got to work together in that, at that time. We did. And I took my marketing role very seriously, as it turned out. To me, I learned that marketing was about living in the market. And when you do that, you start to see change, where change is happening. And pretty quickly from there, it became about market-back innovation. And I worked my way 
um, using marketing as my platform to really be about seeding new innovation, venturing, growth, and uh, ended up as vice chair overseeing business innovation. So that's kind of the, the quick journey through my career. So I gave a little bit of an introduction of you talking about gender. And uh, and I, I had to do that because I thought of you at GE, which prior to you and your position, I thought of as a very male-oriented uh, uh, entity. And, uh, and you broke through when you were leading marketing for the entire organization. And, and then you crushed a couple more ceilings that were there. So you, you went from being chief marketing officer to, to then being president at NBC Universal of integrated media. And then did you go back to being and chief? I went back. To, right. I, went, I, I, uh, I was chief marketing officer. We launched uh, our um, we launched kind of an innovation platform we called Imagination Breakthroughs, a clean tech platform called Ecoimagination. And so I distinguished myself a bit as somebody who gravitated to change. And there was a lot of change happening at NBC at the time in digital media. And they were like, hey, maybe you know, maybe you can go get a handle on what's happening. Uh, the Internet's coming to media. Go, go help us figure it out. And so I spent a couple of years at NBC. They ended up being quite formative years. But, yeah, I was president of, of integrated media, and it was quite a schizophrenic role because I, uh, I uh, had one, head, one part of my head that had to be into the future and digital disruption, and the other part had to be in traditional advertising sales and working with our marketing clients. So it was kind of disrupting myself and my own brain often as the job that I had. Yeah, so one of the things that we're going to have to talk is how, how you can think about that future and what it is that you do. But take me for a second on this question, and it's not where I want to spend the majority of our time, of breaking the glass ceilings. How, how awkward or how comfortable was it for you to, to move into that role in a male-dominated company? Well, um, I, certainly by the time I got to GE in, uh, in the late 90s, um, it was very male-dominated. It was a tech company, a right. financial company. Um, I remember my first leadership meeting at GE, the famed Boca meetings that um, Jack Welch made famous. There were so few women that they took over the ladies' restroom and turned it into a men's room. Wow. And we had to go, like, down the hall, wow. behind the kitchen. Um, so I always marked progress in the following, in the you know, the time that followed in my career. How many, how we got back our ladies' room and the lines <laughs> were equal. So I was able to see progress, but it, it was also just what was happening in business at the time. And I think because I came in at, with a promotion background, communication, marketing. Um, I don't think people really knew what to expect of that function. And so I think in some ways with me being a woman, it all kind of came together in that respect. And, um, and they didn't, the company didn't know a lot about marketing either. So I was able to forge a path uh, with marketing. And I think the fact that I was a woman perhaps um, I, I don't. I, I, that's all I ever was. But in some ways, I found um, the two kind of went together, and I was able to be very creative, and allowed to be creative in a way um, because of that background. So I, what I will say is, what I was able to observe of you within the organization is, you had total command and total respect. It wasn't like, oh, well, there's the woman. You you were clearly a leader, and you had respect. And it was like you just not tapped through. That glass ceiling, you burst through and were in, in total control. So congratulations on that. And just absolutely, absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm real curious. You were CMO. You left. You you moved to integrated media. Um, at integrated media, people may not know exactly what that is. Um, describe that just for a little bit. Is, is that 
and Hulu, because I know Hulu was was part of of that as well. Yeah, th- thanks, Dave. Thanks for those comments. And yeah, integrated media was just what we called it, but it was this sort of trying to divide, uh, bridge the divide between the disruption that was happening in digital. And all of our marketing clients wanted access to data. They wanted new ways to reach their consumers via the Internet. What was NBC doing? And we needed to integrate that into the, the way we delivered programming and also into the business model. So it was a lot of working with brands and our customers as well as with the programming departments. And um, we did, we did some, a lot of things. Some worked and some didn't. One of the first things when I got there, we acquired a company called iVillage because it was a women's-based community because we wanted to connect our viewers to community, to aver- to brands. And um, iVillage ended up suffering kind of what happens in a lot of companies, sort of the, the organ rejection, the antibodies that come out in companies that didn't know what to do with this outside company. But through that, it kind of gave us learning. It was an expensive learning. But out of that, we realized that we needed more than just community, and we needed a really great user experience. And uh, together with Fox, we launched Hulu, what became Hulu, and we we set it up as, um, as really an incubated business away from the, the kind of mothership of both Fox and NBC, hired this amazing entrepreneur named Jason Kyler, and he really set about disrupting the viewing experience, really much focused on the user. Uh, if you recall back in the day when Hulu first launched, for the first few months we had no advertising at all. And then the second wave was to create advertising to give viewers the, the, the command of what advertising they wanted to see. It was a very different experience than what was happening in traditional broadcasting. Um, but that's what, that's what we were trying to seed, were those kind of new models and uh, working with both you, viewers and our brand partners to do that. So let me remind our audience, you're listening to Measured Thoughts on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we're currently speaking with the Beth Comstock, the former vice chair of General Electric. And Beth, I've got to ask you, as you were talking about what it is you did with integrated media and sort of the challenge of that and forward thinking, and it's so forward thinking what you talk about in your book, were you just born with some creative gene? Or where does... Where does all of the innovation and the thought come from of what's next and what's on the horizon? Yeah, I think I believe that pretty much anyone can learn to see, spot, make connections, spot patterns. Uh, And that's some of what I try to unlock in my book and why I called it Imagine It Forward is because I think we need more people in our companies who make room for that. Um, To me, it starts first with making room for discovery. Um, I love kind of a, uh, what I know you teach and, and others teach in, in great business schools, this idea of just a framework of 70-20-10. 70% of your energy, time, resources focused on the now. 20% on the what's next, kind of things on the horizon. We're not exactly sure how they're going to play out, but we see them. And then 10% on the what's new. Um, the things that are yet to really emerge um, and you need to spend more time kind of wallowing in discovery. And so I say to anyone in any company, I guarantee you have 10% of your time that you're, already, that you're spending on things you already know, in meetings you already know the outcome. Liberate yourself. Get out in the world. Get out and go to where things challenge your point of view. 
um, maybe they're weird, especially if they're weird, get out there and you just start to see patterns. Um, you, you, you know, I, you start to see where things are happening. And I think too often in companies, we don't do that. It seems frivolous or I don't have time for that. And I say, how do you not have time for that? Because if not, you wake up one day and you're surprised. Um, you're a taxi medallion owner and, you know, you thought your taxi medallion was uh, forever a, a, right. a boat in the market and there's Uber. Or you were a, brewer, a beer brewer and, uh, you know, you were one of the big beer companies and you miss, totally missed the craft beer pattern that was emerging. And every industry has it. And every, I think everyone has an obligation to get out and see that and then make room to plan for it. So that's basically the thesis of, of why I wrote the book. And I learned how to do that. I, I hung around with a lot of different people. I made myself accessible. I tried to really open GE up to new perspectives and people who would provoke our point of view. And I think you have to do that in business. Yeah, you absolutely did. You said something else that caught my attention that, that I want to ask you about, which is, uh, you, you said we tried a lot of things at NBC Universal, um, which in, in, in integrated media, and some of them worked and some of them didn't. And I think the notion of failure and being accepting of uh, failure and trying things—I mean, when you're when you're out there on that frontier working on things that haven't been done before, some of them are going to fail. And I guess one of the key questions in my mind is how you, how you, A, get yourself to accept some of that failure, but more importantly, how you get an organization mm-hmm. to, uh, to accept some failure. And what's the secret of that? And, and how did you get acceptance of that at General Electric? Well, I would say we got acceptance in pockets, but it wasn't a universal acceptance. And I think it is exactly like you said. First, you have to kind of get yourself there. Um, and then you have to get a whole team and then a whole organization. And I think what big companies do especially, but I've seen startups do this too, is they throw too much money at something before it's time. And so I'm a big believer in um, really testing and learning. And you have a hypothesis. You have a vision of where you want to go, what, what, where this trend may be taking you. And then you're testing different paths that you think might help you get there. And you're testing it at smaller scale with smaller amounts of money, smaller teams in the beginning. So your, your appetite for failure is more in that you're testing more things faster. Um, what companies often do is they're, they have to be certain. They're like, this is absolutely the plan we're going to have, and they throw a lot of money at it. And I've seen this happen way too often. It, you didn't validate enough early on. You barely had more than one customer, and you threw too much money and the wrong people at it. And then before you know it, you're writing, you're, you have a huge write-off because you weren't able to take some of those calculated risks. So to me, it's about just narrowing those windows of more necessary risk and doing it earlier so that you're building confidence. So by the time you're ready to say, okay, we feel good, we've tested this, we have enough customers, now let's put more money into it with a degree of confidence that we might not have had had we done it earlier. So the notion of, uh, of, ta- of doing a variety of things that haven't been out there before seems risky, but what I hear you describing, which I absolutely love, is it's a way to reduce risk. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a way to navigate risk. I met someone um, recently, and he, he said, hey, I, my job is risk avoidance. You know, what advice do you have for me? And I was like, none. You're going to fail. That is not right. a possible <laughs> job path. But I think too often in companies, we think that's the, the path. I remember at NBC specifically, one business leader saying to me, as we were testing some of these new digital models, 
well, I'll fund you if you guarantee me this is a $500 million idea. Well, okay, yeah, right, that, it works that way. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that's, the, that's a bit of the bind that companies put themselves into, um, that you, at some point you have to have confidence that, that it's going to be there. But, yes, there is a certain amount of de-risking that has to happen on your path to, to scaling these ideas. Um, and we lose patience. These ideas are too small. They seemingly aren't going somewhere fast enough, and people lose patience. It's seen as dabbling or other things. Um, and they want, I, I hear this time and again, I was just meeting with a retail customer, a retail person recently, and their leader was very frustrated that, that things weren't moving faster. But sometimes it just is what it has to be. And we, we, we need to deal with that, in, I think, more, um, more in a more disciplined way in companies. So one of the things that, um, that I've got to ask you, and you talk about it in your book, uh, but I'm going to give you context for it, which is, I want to know how you initiate how you initiated change and innovation, but but how you did it within a company that was steeped in tradition and history. So you've got this huge behemoth, the General Electric, and and so I'm looking for what you did within GE to get the the willingness to change and and, and innovate, but how you do that in a well-established company that's steeped in tradition. Well, it's um, as I document in my book, it was a career's worth of learning there, um, and you have to like the struggle and the energy it takes. But, I mean, it's a couple of things. I mean, one, it's what I said earlier. You're out in the market. You're discovering. You're seeing patterns. Um, you're listening to customers. I mean, it sounds so basic, but it's that Peter Drucker quote, without a customer, there is no business. Right. So take, for example, our foray into clean tech when it was still early. We heard from our customers, some of them, saying, help us. We can't go broke having cleaner tech. We want it, but we can't go broke. Out of that came our offer, which was economical and ecological. I mean, we did dreaming sessions with customers to peer out into the future. So you have to work with your customers. There are always a segment of your customer base that's willing to help you imagine the future. That then gives the internal folks confidence. Um, that, yes, there's somebody there who believes in it. You're not going to win over every customer, and that's also a recognition that sometimes you're moving faster than, than your customers. When we were doing that with digital, the digitization of industry, we were looking at a market that hadn't even yet been shaped, so we were ahead of many of our customers. In that case, you're often just creating a really um, sort of hopefully creating a story, a vision, uh, a, a payback, the digitization of industry is going to give you more productivity. So it's just you're creating kind of a surround sound of change. You're, you're telling stories. You're showing examples. You're doing experiments. Uh, and then the last thing I think is just uh, you can't um, you have to articulate the need for really great championship. And uh, I saw that in Jeff Immelt, who I, I try to, you know, highlight in, in the book, um, mm -hmm. was a good champion. You know, the struggle he had within himself as a CEO of having to meet the short-term commitments and, and allow people like me who were fighting for the future. There's a lot of tension in that. Right. So as a leader, you have to be able to do both and champion the people who are fighting for the future, give them some space, but also realize you can't give up on today either. So all, I think all those things have to come together. But the bottom line, Dave, is you can't make people change. I think, they have, I think you really have to continually surround them with the new realities, they have to hear it, they have to see it in their own, how it's going to impact their job in their own way, uh, and then change starts to happen. And I think we get that wrong often in companies. We think we just command people to change, and they do. That, that rarely works. 
Beth, uh, your book, Imagine It Forward, is a great book. One of the things that, that I, I hear in the book, and I heard you just mention it, is, uh, is having tensions within the organization. And, and actually, that's a good thing. So could you expand on that a little bit about sort of the role of tension? Well, I mean, without tension, there really isn't a lot of um, progress in the sense that tension is um, inviting in critics people with different perspectives. I, I often say if, you, if, if everyone thinks your idea or your vision is a good one, then maybe you're not asking the right people. So uh, there's, a, there's a part of business, I, I actually call it out as agitated inquiry, this idea of asking questions, beating up your ideas, inviting in the critics, um, because you've got to get to a better place. You're trying to make sure your idea is sturdy. Um, what happens in companies is, one, we don't, no one, most people don't like conflict. I don't. Um, I spend most of my time avoiding it, but there are some things where you just have to actually seed it, and I think innovation is one. It gets you to a better place. Um, the other thing is that where it goes wrong is we don't acknowledge it. Um, this is what I saw a lot in my NBC days. People would sit around a table, and they'd agree to something, and then they'd leave the room, and they'd go, I'm never going to do that. I know I just agreed to that, but I'm not going to do that. Right. Um, right. And I, I didn't see that at GE. I saw more of the GE culture was we're going we're gonna, to you know, have a debate, and then a leader's going to make a decision, and we're all going to move forward until we get new information. So I think you have to have these kind of almost contracts uh, with your team that just says, you know, we're going to allow this dissension and debate to get to a better place, and then we're going to make a decision, and then we're going to act. And I think too often we don't allow the conflict. Everybody's got to tell you what you think the boss wants to hear, or, you know, you don't want the bad news, um, or you don't, you know, you allow people some bad behavior that they say one thing and do the other. And, and leaders just have to be on guard for that. They have to seed it nurture it, and then make a decision and move forward. So there were, there were several things in that that you got me thinking about. I, w- I was doing some consulting for one company, and the, the CEO of the company was having a meeting with the various different uh, business unit presidents. And I said, well, for this meeting, we ought to have some customers come in and talk ab- about you know, what they saw we should be doing. Sort of, I, it, it was similar to your notion of dreaming with customers, but I wasn't that imaginative <laughs> to come up with that expression. Um, but I said, what we also should do is bring in some people that are no longer your customers, oh, those, that have, those that have left. And he refused to do that. He didn't want to have a meeting where there was going to be negativity. And what I heard you say is, you know, the, the importance of your critics also. And you have I, to do that. Absolutely. I just love that. Yeah, I, I, um, I found this very helpful with the teams I worked with. Just a simple question. Tell me some, something I don't want to hear. That's what you were saying. You don't want to hear this, but you must. You don't, have to, you don't have to agree with it all. You don't have to change every business process just because you get criticism. But you at least have to consider it, right, don't you? And at least say, huh, is that true? What would happen if that were true? I think there's a there's a, a, a sort of critical thinking process, and to me, that's some of what I'm trying to articulate in the imagination gap. I feel we see in companies, which is that critical, that creative problem solving. That's what you were trying to bring to light there. Yeah, no, it a- absolutely is part of what I was going to do. So, Beth, um, yeah, this is Sunil here. Uh, I think what you're saying is is fantastic and makes a lot of sense. One thing that uh, you know, I'm I, I like your thoughts on it is is how do you develop this skill? So, you know, your book, 
is really kind of a great uh, uh, impetus to say, let's innovate and let's think about change. But for, I think, a lot of business uh, business people, they're kind of set stuck in their ways and they're really focused on the present. Uh, so how do you, whether it's in the per- personal life or your business life, how do you think about uh, cultivating the skill and how did you cultivate it and how do you recommend people go about cultivating it? Yes, you know, thanks. I, I mean... One, you just—it's like it's like a workout routine. I mean, you know, it's just like you got to make room for it. You you have to believe that part of your your life and your job is being ready for change and being ready for what's next. Uh, as I said earlier, you don't have to devote your whole life to it, but I think part of it is um, just doing that. I mean, one, I'm big on just you know kind of mental mindset shifts. Just open your mindset up to consider different options. Give yourself permission to go see something different ask a different question of a customer, explore something new, um, make that room, do some of these experiments. I mean, I think these are the things that people have to do. I often say to people, there are simple things you can do. Uh, if, if you commute one way to work, take a different path home and then go back to the old way. I guarantee you'll see things you didn't notice before. If you're running right. through the airport and you want to pick up, a, you know, you normally read something, pick up a magazine or a book that you would never think would be interesting to you. Challenge yourself to say, what can I learn from this? Uh, when you're at a conference, go seek out somebody who has a totally different kind of job or different perspective. Ask them what trends they're watching, what they're seeing. So I didn't think it's just, it's really kind of a change of perspective you're forcing of yourself. Um, I guarantee you, you have time, you, you can make time to do that, um, as opposed to keep reading the same things or seeing the same things mm-hmm. or looking for certainty in a place where maybe it's just not going to happen. So I'm going to bring in some dark clouds since you since you want uh, conflict and confrontation. <laughs> I got to bring yeah. in some here um, with sort of uh, doing a new frontier and changing what it is that you're doing and uh, and trying to innovate comes some risk. Um, I, I understand in the long run it redu- it reduces risk, but in the short run it it in- introduces risk. Um, GE and certainly many, many other companies are so sensitive to the street and trying to see you know, what kind of returns we're getting. And you look at returns, but you also look at that beta or that risk factor. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with that? And how do you deal with the pressure from Wall Street um, while you're trying to do the innovation? Yeah, well, I think it is a real issue today. I mean, let me talk sort of big company and then at the individual level. I do think it takes a bold leader to say to their investors, hey, look, I'm running on two tracks here. I've got the core business, and it's a bit more predictable, uh, repeatable. Here's what you can expect. But I'm also seeing the future, and that has a different set of metrics and returns and time horizon. And I'm putting different people and different – I'm allocating capital differently to that. Um, I think that's hard to do, um, but I do think it's possible. Um, with transparency and communication. Uh, but you obviously have to follow through on that. I think at an individual level, look, I think a lot of, uh, one of the reasons I wrote my book is I especially wanted to encourage people at the middle of their career, the middle of our companies, early to middle career, to take some of those risks. Because sometimes, I mean, ask yourself, am I really going to jeopardize my job by asking this question? Am I really going to jeopardize this customer relationship by trying it a different way? Or am I just afraid? And often what holds us back really is just fear of doing it. So um, I would stand it, you know, Dave, you've been to Crotonville. I would stand up to especially early managers in the company. I'd say, 
look at all the things I did and I didn't get fired. In fact, in some cases, I might have even gotten promoted because of it. So there's, there's certain things you can do and there's certain ways you can take risk that are going to move you forward if you have the right vision, hypothesis, strategy. I'm not saying be stupid, but I think we're afraid. And, and I would say to inv- then back up to investors, you know, I mean, if, if, you can, if you're not allowing some room for failure, how are you ever going to have success? And I worry that we're not having this kind of discussion right now. So I'm not trying to be naive. I know how hard it is when you've got leaders like Warren Buffett, Jamie Dimon, Larry Fink, writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal saying we need to get rid of quarterly guidance because we're too short-term focused. Clearly, people are struggling with this. But I wish we could have more discussion about, okay, what actions are people taking? Right. So we still do have those quarterly sort of reviews and and, and – I, you know, and whenever suddenly there's a little bit of a downturn, you know, there's pressure. You know that better than I do, for sure. So trying to get past that, I, I think, is, is really, really tough. It is. I mean, look at, you know, G's had a tough had a tough year to 18 months. It's played out. Um, the tension between the long term and the short term. I mean, in some ways, investors were patient and the others, they weren't. I don't think they appreciated some of the complexity and some of the, the challenges of what had to happen there. Um, take Tesla right now. I mean, Tesla needs some reset moments to get to scale and to do the things they're doing that are difficult. They're not going to get there just by quarter over quarter kind of commitments. They need different paths, and I don't know we have the systems to recognize that. So I, I worry that it could become a crisis. Yeah, I, I do too, and I agree with you on that. So let me ask you what may be a really tough question, which is, is there any way that we can try and measure the return on innovation? Well, I, I thought a lot about this. I mean, a couple of thought starters. You, I'm sure you all have your, your perspectives. I mean, one, I think the idea, I've talked to a lot of economists. I mean, one, just the, uh, the notion of optionality. I mean, creating options is one thing innovation gets, you, gets for you. I think there is a, a way to um, allocate your capital so you're building confidence against the future. So, again, back to that helm kind of your throughput of ideas. How many ideas are you testing for how little money to build confidence so that by the time I fund something, my degree of confidence is higher, um, realizing there's no certainty? Um, I think new revenue from new sources, um, new revenue from new applications. Um, You know, I think some of those kinds of measures are things I've seen successful um, over over the course of a of a career. I'm curious what you how you guys look at that. No, I I think that's part of it. I think that you know it's not just revenue that comes from them, but you sort of would like to look at the profitability. But but in those early stages. Uh, a lot of those don't have profits, so that they makes can, it. And that's th- the wrong th- measurement th- at the wrong stage. Right. Exactly. I, no, I think that's right. So you've got to do some forecasting of it as well. Um, what would be some of the highlights that you would like people to sort of take away from your book? Because uh, I've read your book. I thought it was just absolutely fantastic. Um, I love the the gripping introduction of talking about you and the CIA. <laughs> but uh, which I mean, it was like uh, you started it off as a mystery book. I can't believe it. Uh, but what would be the major takeaways you want uh, our li- listening audience to uh, to have from your book? Well, I think it's just this that we need more people fighting for the future in our organizations. And I'm not meaning like let's all go to Mars. I mean the near term future. 
starting to think about the, the nature of change is changing. I think we all have to accept the pace. We're, we're kind of tired of people talking about how fast the world is going. But I think what, what we can be sure of is there's a new style of leadership. It's much more ready for what's emerging, much more adaptable, able to deal with kind of the what's at scale and what's new. And it needs to start early in someone's career. And then the second thing would be just, you know, sort of the, the, the empowerment that needs to happen, the grabbing power, the new models of management. I kind of think management, as we, as we all maybe knew it growing up, is, is over in the sense it's much more distributed, much more empowered, much more figure it out. So I think change is forcing us to a new place, and it really comes down to adaptability. And you, it starts with you and your team. You can't do it at a big company level unless you start with you and your team committed to change the way you work. Yeah, per- perfect things should be taken away. I'm going to ask you one last question, which is, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about General Electric. Um, I know you're on the board of Nike, and um, and Nike did something big and bold. And um, did that make it to a board discussion of the uh, of the sort of endorsement of, of Colin Kaepernick? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, certainly Mark Parker doesn't need board approval to run an ad, but certainly in the aftermath, there was a lot of discussion. Um, and um, I, I thought it was a, a great example of brand courage. And I think this is a, a, a reminder of what we need in brands today. Leaderships, there's a leadership void in the world, and people are looking to companies to take a stand, not to be political, but to take a stand on something that, that they value that they see is important, that they know is important to their customers and employees. And I thought Nike showed that, and um, they were willing to take the criticism. And I think every company needs to know what that is in their context, and their employees are holding them accountable, and I, I believe their consumers are as well. So when Nike did that ad, I thought, I think I see a little bit of Beth in there. I think I think I saw that it was being bold and it was being brave and taking a position. And those are all things that I think about you. And oh, it, thank it, you. You are you are a rock star. And and I understand you're going to be here on campus this week. Is that right? I am. Yes, I'm there on Wednesday. So that's that's I, what I thought. I'm going to I'm teaching a class. I'm going to jump in there. Because you know, if I have a chance to catch a little bit of Beth, oh, uh, of Beth Comstock, I'll, I'll I'll look forward to you. So, thank you very much for joining us. Really, really appreciate that. Oh, it was Congratulations so great up with you, and, 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 and nice, and nice catching up with both of you. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you thank very you. much. Uh, we're going to need to take a, a short break, but please do stay with us. When we get back, we're going to take your calls on anything related to marketing, branding, and metrics in the last uh, twenty minutes of the show. Anything that you might have about what it is that we heard from the brilliant Beth Comstock would be appreciated. You can join the conversation by giving us a call at 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or send us an email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. This is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 132. 